2 Kings 19. When we left Hezekiah last week in chapter 19, the Rabshakeh, this head negotiator, whoever he is, he had returned with a second message from the king of Assyria that said, do not trust the Lord. He's lying to you. Look at the facts. We have destroyed everyone that we have fought against. The Lord cannot save you from us. And Hezekiah takes those words to the Lord now in prayer. And what results is God's devoted response to His people, proving that prayer does indeed work. So chapter 19, we pick it up in verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwells between the cherubims, you are the God, even you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Hezekiah takes this letter from the Rabshakeh, and he It says he went, he read it, and then he went up into the house of the Lord, the temple, and then he spread it before the Lord. This is interesting because this second message is very different than the first negotiation meeting because that one was spoken for all the people to hear, right? But this one's written for Hezekiah alone to see, which shows there's a change in policy here. The first message that the king of Assyria sent was designed to frighten the people into laying down their weapons and turning over Hezekiah. But when the people don't do that, the king of Assyria says, all right, now I'm just going to try to frighten Hezekiah into turning himself in and telling his people to lay their weapons down. You might think, well, why would that work? Well, because Judah's situation is still desperate. Yes, the city of Lachish did not fall, but another city is being attacked and they haven't won any battles yet. So, what is the best course of action for the nation? Hezekiah makes the best possible decision in a crisis of this nature. He kicks the problem up to his superior, right? That's always the best solution when you don't know what to do in a crisis. Kick it up to someone with more authority, more power, the real king of Judah, the Lord. He takes this letter, goes into the temple, And it says he spread it, which means, remember, they'd use scrolls back then. So he unrolls the scroll, and he just lays it before the Lord. There is a sense here where this is a wordless prayer, right? He takes it, he doesn't say anything, he just lays it before the Lord. See what they say about you, Lord? See what they're telling me to do? See their pride. And Lord, please see my repentant heart and my humility. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about this concept of the Lord seeing these things. In Proverbs 6, 16, it says, These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto Him. And the first one is a proud look. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, it says, Surely He scorns the scorners, referring to the Lord, but He gives grace unto the lowly, the humble. Have you ever done what Hezekiah did here with the accusations the enemy throws away or the fears the enemy 
tries to instill in you? Like, have you ever put them down in writing and then just spread them out in prayer before the Lord? When I thought about what Hezekiah did here, it it really caused me to pause. Because I had to take a moment and I say, Lord, what accusations am I entertaining and letting stew in my mind right now? What fears is the enemy bringing into my life that I'm trying to deal with on my own? Is there anything right now I need to just lay out before the Lord? And it was really interesting. There's a few things that I kind of just laid out and said, this is what he's saying. What do you say? It was kind of cool. It put it in perspective. I think what Hezekiah is doing here is, is his mindset is one that the Bible calls submitting to God. I think the idea of submission is when you voluntarily place, choose to place yourself under someone else's authority, right? When you choose to do that. And what Hezekiah is doing here is he's saying, Lord, you're the one who's in charge, not me. You're the final authority, so here's the dilemma. Lord, what are you going to do about this dilemma? What do you want me to do with all of this? That is always the best way to handle a crisis. I mean, I realize that, you know, if your child's running out into the road and the car's coming, you just go grab the child, right? They're obvious things. Like, I don't need to pray about, okay, Lord, I've got a situation. I'm in a crisis. My boss is threatened to fire me if I don't break the law and do this illegal thing at work. Like, that's not something that you need to come and lay that out before the Lord. Like, you just need to be like, hey, Lord, uh, I'm not going to do that. But would you describe yourself as someone who submits to the Lord? Or do you attempt to tackle your dilemmas on your own? I find that, generally speaking, in major crises, I definitely bring it to the Lord, because I've just grown over the years to be very aware that I'm not going to cut it. But definitely in the day-to-day things, I thought, I don't, I don't know if I do that as well. Would you describe yourself as someone who submits to the Lord? Well, Hezekiah follows up this action without any words, now with a beautiful prayer. Verse 15 Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. In other words, right where he enrolled the scroll in the temple, he prays and he says, O Lord God of Israel, O Lord, Yahweh, the becoming one, the one who becomes to his people what his people need him to be, God of Israel, the one who chose us, the one who entered into a covenant with us, which dwells between the cherubims. The cherubims, of course, being on top of the mercy seat. You have the two angels with their wings covering the mercy seat. The mercy seat was considered God's throne. So like the Ark of the Covenant, it's a throne. It's carrying the idea of like a chariot throne that was used by the kings back then. And God's throne is pictured that way in heaven as well. And so the idea is in the Holy of Holies, we call it a mercy seat, and we think of it as being a lid but it's, the idea is that's where God's presence would be, sitting on a throne. That's why it's called a seat, even though it's a lid. Like I usually don't when I'm asking, you know, if we're in the kitchen, me and Bev working together, she doesn't say, hey, can you get me the seat to the pot? But it's a throne, so that's why it's called a mercy seat. You who sit there on that mercy seat, the place of mercy where we come to you, looking for atonement, looking for forgiveness, looking for blessing. You're that God. 
the God of covenant. You are the God, even you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You're real. You're the king of all creation. There are no gods besides you. So whoever the king of Assyria thinks he's beaten, you're not at all like them. You're not all like those gods. You're the Lord of all the kingdoms, he says, of the earth. The Lord is not a local or regional deity. You're the God of all locales, of all regions, of all the world's kingdoms that come and go on the earth over time. You know, whether or not a location or a government recognizes God's sovereignty, in other words, His absolute power and authority, whether they recognize it or not, God is still their creator. still is. He still has absolute power and absolute authority. No one else has that. Now, think about, like, the amount of power the U.S. government has at its disposal. I mean, think about it, the real firepower that we have at our disposal. And yet, our government still couldn't create a heaven and an earth, could it? No, the thought's absurd. I mean, we could try to colonize a lifeless planet, but even if we succeeded in doing so, it would be because we brought Earth's atmosphere with us. Not because we created a planet, and certainly not a universe. But God isn't just the supreme ruler because He can make a planet. It's because He made our planet. He made us. I think it's interesting that Hezekiah prays this way because this is how Jesus taught us to start our prayers. There is no one like you, Heavenly Father. No one like you. You are holy. When we sing that God's holy, we're saying He's distinct, He's separate, He's pure, He's our Creator. He's not like us. The way that we align our hearts with that fact of who He is is by acknowledging it and then praying what Jesus taught us next. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Saying, Lord, I want things to be done here in my life like they are in heaven. I submit to your rule. So Hezekiah starts off his prayer in desperate situations by aligning his heart with who God is and he welcomes that rule in his life. He welcomes that rule in his nation's life. And on the basis of that submitted heart, he then makes his request, verse 16. Like if you, I remember I was at school and you know, you start reading these books, part of the curriculum was that you had to read these biographies by these godly men. So you read about George Mueller and, you know, Praying Hyde and some of these other missionaries and stuff. And you read and they're like, you know, I had a wonderful time with the Lord for 74 hours today in prayer. And then the sun came up. You know, I'd be like, all right, all right, so tomorrow I'm going to get up at 5.30. Give me two hours before devotions. I'm going to get up at 5.30. I'm going to pray. And then it's like 6.15 because I hit the snooze button four times. And, you know, you, you spend some time with the Lord, and then, you know, you're just all beat up and discouraged, whatever. And I thought, you know, why is this not working for me? I think because very often we approach prayer as a, like a, it's like a chore that needs to be done. The lawn needs to be mowed. And I realize that there are some enjoyable parts about doing that maybe, Certainly, sometimes maybe when we pray, it's better than others. 
But I don't think the right way to approach prayer is as like, well, this is a, like a religious chore that I need to do each day. And so when I find myself in that place of kind of going through the motions at the start of a prayer time, what I, what I learned was, well, why don't you get up and why don't you just start worshiping the Lord? I will pause at times and make myself just start to tell the Lord how awesome He is. And what I find is everything just comes down about ten notches. And it's no longer a, okay, I've got to do this and this after I get done praying. And now it's just me and the Lord. We're just spending time together. There's something crucial about aligning your heart with who God is and then welcoming that rule in your life, that submitted heart. And everything else now becomes secondary to being with Him. Verse 16, He makes His first request. And He addresses Sennacherib's accusations. He says, Lord, bow down your ear and hear. Open, Lord, your eyes and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which has sent him to reproach the living God. Bow down your ear. It means extend or stretch out your ears. Don't think God's a last guy. He just can stretch out his ears. That's not what he's saying. What's interesting is the word here, ear, is singular. Eyes are plural. And the reason that ear is singular is because I know when I really want to hear something, my hearing's not great, I'll cup one ear and then kind of tilt it in the direction of wherever the sound is coming from. And that's what he's saying, Lord, would you cup your ear? Would you incline it toward me so that you hear what, I'm, uh, hear what he said? Not toward me, toward, toward this situation and hear what he said. Oh, Lord, he says, open your eyes and see. Plural again, the idea of both eyes on it means giving it your full attention instead of just a casual glance. And note the repetition. He, he keeps saying, Lord, Lord, bow down your ear and hear. Open, Lord, your eyes and see. You're the one who's made a covenant with us, the Lord. You're the one who told us to pray to you. And so my prayer, it's in accordance with your decrees as our king. I don't think it's ever a bad idea to remind the Lord who he is in prayer. I hear all weird things about prayer. Some people say, you don't need to remind God about the situation. Why does your prayer sound like a news report? Do you not talk to people like that? Like, do you never discuss something that with someone you love when they already know all the facts? Do you just not discuss it? God doesn't need to be reminded of, you know, who He is or what He does or His promises or whatever. He is who He is. He's going to do what He does. Really? I hear these weird statements, and I think to myself, you've never read a biblical prayer. Because the people of God do it all the time. I think the reason God gave us 150 psalms is so we would just shut up and not argue about how a prayer is supposed to exactly be. I realize it can be a bit distracting when someone repeats God's name over and over again because they're not sure what to pray next. You know, I remember somebody really messed me up once. They're like, you know, when you pray, 
You know, notice sometimes people, they just like switch between like members of the Trinity like 80 times in a prayer. And like, I was like, oh, I'm going to look for that. And then I was destroyed. So, talking to the Father. No, talking to Jesus. No, the Spirit, Jesus, the Father. And I, I was like, what? Person wrecked me. I know it can be distracting when someone's saying, you know, and we know, Lord, just Lord, you're so good, Lord. And Lord, I, I understand that that can be distracting. It'd probably be better in that situation to pause and think about what you're going to say. Repetition by itself is not wrong. It's vain repetition that's wrong. Empty repetition. Or, or you repeat something over and over again because you think repeating it will make it magically happen. That's, that's wrong too. Prayer doesn't work like that. Repeated acknowledgments of God's character, His authority, His name, from a sincere or even a desperate heart. There's nothing wrong with that. You say, well, we don't repeat a person's name like that when we talk to them. Okay, but yeah, the Lord, we talk to people a certain way and we can talk to the Lord like that too, but the Lord's also not like other people, is He? My kids don't address me. Oh, Father, head of our household, we are... I make this request to thee, Father, O provider of our family. <laughs> but God is different. Some of that can be worship, some of that is just speaking truth. Some of that can be received by someone else who you're praying with as you're kind of edifying them too, reminding them who God is. Many prayers in the Bible consist of reminding God who He claims to be. Lord, you said this. Lord, you promised this. <laughs> I've said that to the Lord on numerous occasions. Lord, you said you provide for all my needs through your riches and glory. Lord, I really need you to provide for my need right now. I think when we look in the Scripture, we see that the Holy Spirit moved the authors to record those prayers for us. Those prayers were genuinely from the people's hearts, but the, the Holy Spirit moved those authors to include those prayers so that we would know how to pray. I pre my preference would be just to get people praying and be less critical about all the words that are coming out. He says, Lord, see, hear the words of Sennacherib, which has sent him to reproach the living God. He sent Rabshakeh to reproach you, the living God, to taunt, insult. Look at the letter, Lord. Hear the words that were dictated from his mouth because they slander you, the living God, the only real God. Hezekiah asked God to deal with the accusation that God is trying to trick you, Hezekiah. Don't listen to the Lord. The Lord can't be trusted. He's lied to you. And he says, Lord, will you deal with him? Will you hear and will you act accordingly? I think praying, Lord, will you rebuke the enemy concerning the lie he keeps telling me is way more affecting than somehow trying to ward it off with an I rebuke you, Satan. 
I rebuke you, Satan. I bind you, Satan. You know, it, it just, I don't know. It almost sounds like, you know, if you swat enough, the fly will die. <laughs> Go too far, Pastor Will, too far. Too far. Too close. The Lord is the creator of all, isn't he? He can bring way more to bear against the enemy than you or I can, right? I mean, I know we've been given all authority and all power to cast out demons, things like that. I, I get that. But at the same time, I don't think that's the same, the same thing as like being under attack or temptation. I think if Michael the archangel said, the Lord rebuke you, I don't really feel like we should do much more than that. Well, Hezekiah, he brings Rabshakeh's not only the accusations against the Lord, but he brings Rabshakeh's evidence before the Lord next. Verse 17, of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. The Rabshakeh said, why would you trust in the Lord? Every god that, every town we've come up to, every city, every nation we've come up to, we've, we've destroyed them. Their gods didn't protect them. Why would the Lord protect you? Just go with the percentages, man. It's interesting. He says, of a truth, Lord, he's not lying. They have beaten everybody else. None of those gods helped those people. But I love Hezekiah. He goes, but that's because they aren't real like you. They are no gods. Just the works of men's hands. And that they did nothing. Nothing to protect their people when their priests had said, well, Baal will protect us. Well, it shows they weren't real. Now, the Lord is the creator, so he's not subject to our demands or requests. God saying no to requests doesn't mean he isn't real. But God has made promises, has he not? And he keeps his promises. And many of God's promises are bound up in the fact that he says his people would always be his people. So if Israel gets wiped out, and in this case of Judah here, the only tribe left gets wiped out, then many promises will fail, won't they? It's one of the reasons that the enemy hates Israel so much. It doesn't matter whether Israel's like they are now in the land in unbelief or, or if they're following the Lord. It doesn't matter. He hates them because if he can wipe them out, then certain promises of God have failed. I don't pretend to know the mind of the enemy. He's far more vile than I could even pretend to conceive. But there's a part of me that wonders, if somehow he can wipe out Israel, then he can look at the Lord and say, how can you justly punish me when you didn't keep your promise? I don't know. That's just a guess. That's not Bible. Do not take that to the bank. It's worth zero. But I do wonder. Now, since God doesn't fail, keep his promises. That means God won't let them get wiped out, right? The fact that Israel is a nation today, but all these other ones mentioned by the Reb Shekha are not, is a testimony to God's existence. Their gods couldn't preserve them, but despite many deportations from the land and centuries of persecution, which the ugliness of we're seeing today, there is still a distinct Israeli people. And so Hezekiah says the difference between them and you is that 
You were not created by us, but these idols were. They're the work of men's hands, wood and stone. There's a passage in Isaiah, and part of me wonders if this was conceived around this same time. I don't know. But in Isaiah 44, verse 8, when he's trying to encourage the nation that God will keep his promises, even though they're going through a time of discipline, Isaiah, in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 44, in his message to the nation of Israel, he says, fear you not, neither be be afraid. Have not I told you from that time? Have not I declared it? In other words, I've told you you're, you're going to be all right. I've told you this is not the end. You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yes, there is no God. I know not any. I love that. Here's the creator of the universe. He's like, I've, I've toured the whole universe. I, I know everything, and I haven't met one. And so they that make a graven image, verse 9, are all of them vanity, useless, a puff of smoke. And they're delectable things. They're precious things. They shall not profit. You can dress the idol up all nice, paint it real pretty, sculpt it wonderfully, but it shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know, that they may be ashamed. Who has formed a God or melted a graven image that it profits for nothing, that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed. And the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yea, they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together. In other words, because their gods don't come through. And he explains the process of how this happens. The smith with the tongs both works in the coals and he fashions it with the hammers, the idol. And he works it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he's hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he's faint. Why? Because I've got to make my God. The carpenter, he stretches out his rule. He's measuring wood. He marks it out with a line. He fits it with the planes, and he marks it out with the compass and makes it after the figure of a man, carves this thing out, makes it looking like a man according to the beauty of a man that it might remain in the house, gives it little feet so he can stand. He cuts him down cedars and takes the cypress and the oak, which he strengthens for himself among the trees of the forest. So he grows these strong trees. And he chops it down to make an idol. He plants an ash, and the rain does nourish it. And then shall it be for a man to burn. For he will take from it, from this tree that he cuts down, and he'll warm himself with some of it. Yeah, he kindles it, and he bakes bread. He cooks on some of it. Yeah, he makes a god. Another, another part, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image, and he bows down, falls down there too. He burns part thereof in the fire, and with part he eats flesh. He roasts roast to satisfy. Yea, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am worn. I have seen the form. I have seen the fire. And with the rest of it, he makes a God. Even his graven image. He falls down unto it. He worships it, prays unto it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Isaiah, do you see, he's trying to point out the absurdity. Hezekiah says, they're the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they have destroyed him. He's got evidence, but this is why it happened. This is why those nations were wiped out and their idols were burned, because they were just wood and they were just stone. I don't need to listen to Sennacherib's evidence because it's incomplete. 
It doesn't give all the information, and therefore, it's not wholly accurate evidence. So, Lord, I will keep trusting you instead of looking at his evidence. And in light of that, here's what I'm asking you to do. Verse 19, not only to hear what he said, but now, therefore, verse 19, O Lord our God, I beseech you, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, even you only. I beseech you, please, I'm begging you, Lord, please, Save us from out of his hand. Isaiah, I mean, Hezekiah does not confuse the situation they're in. He's like, the king of Assyria has us in a vice grip. We're about to be crushed. We can't get out of his hand on our own. Lord, rescue us. Why? That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God. I said last week that praying on the basis of God's mercy is an effective way to pray. Praying for God to do something so that others know He alone is God is another way to pray effectively. Lord, would you do this so other people know that you're the Lord and you're God alone? It's another way to pray effectively. You know, our Christmas caroling is coming up in a few weeks, and I'm so excited about it, but there's always the potential to get rained out. In all the years I've been doing it, I think it's only rained once or twice, and I think we've only gotten rained out once. But we live in Florida, right? So it could happen. Now, I could pray, Lord, please keep the rain at bay that night, because it'd be a bummer if we all show up and we can't go out caroling. There's nothing wrong with that prayer, but I do think a more effective prayer would be this. Lord, we're going to go out and sing that night to a bunch of people in the neighborhood over there in Kingswood over here. They're going to hear the gospel. They're going to know that there's a God out there who loves them. Will you please allow more people to know and hear about you by keeping the rain at bay? Do you see the difference? I'm not saying God won't listen to the first prayer. Again, I, I'm not, I started the whole message by saying let's not be so critical. I'm not saying God won't listen to the first prayer, but there is a difference between the two because the first prayer is definitely more self-oriented. It'd be a bummer if we show up and can't go out caroling. The second is definitely more God-oriented. Now, Christmas caroling is not a matter of life and death, not for us at least. But in this situation, this was for Hezekiah and his people. He had every reason to be self-oriented in his prayer. Lord, we're going to die <laughs> if you don't save us. Save us now, please. But that's not how he prays. He says, Lord, rescue us so, no, so more people will know who you are. Isn't that awesome? More people will know you're the only God. And I promise you this, that kind of prayer is going to touch the Lord's heart. Look at verse 20. Well, then, so this happens after he's done praying. People say, well, wait a second. You know, if God knows everything we're going to do and, and, and he's got a plan, you know, and, and, and don't try to outthink the Bible. Don't. I, I remember I had a, a, a classmate at school and he just struggled with the idea of prayer. Like, why, would I, why should I pray? God knows. He knows everything that's going to happen. It doesn't change his mind. And I'm just like, I'm like, what do you mean? Are you telling me that God is not touched by anything you do? And I'm like, get out of your own head. Get out of your own logic. And just take what the Bible says and leave it there. 
I do think prayer changes things. Oh, that doesn't make sense with, I don't care what you say about it not making sense. It's what the Bible says. Over and over he's saying, God, his heart was moved by that, or, or God saw that and he acted. I do think prayer changes things. I do think prayer matters. And I for sure know that prayer works. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, I, I always think it's interesting, he sent. Like, this is a pretty important thing, dude. Like, of all the things you're going to do as prophet, you're going to be like, hey, I'm going to type an email out, you know? Like, I always tell married couples, don't fight over text. That's a big no-no. Like, the minute, like, the texting starts to get more serious than, hey, I miss you, I love you, hey, what, what time do you need me home tonight? Like, stuff like that, stop. Pick up the phone and make a call or wait till you see them face-to-face. That's a bad idea. Important conversations shouldn't be had over messenger. He doesn't come, though. He sent to Hezekiah, saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel. I do think that shows the value, though, that when you send someone God's word, like, of, of doing that. I, I'll have the Lord prompt me sometimes, like, hey, just send this verse to so-and-so, and I'm like, that's kind of random. But I've never had someone text me back after I sent them a verse and said, why'd you send me that? Most of the time it's like, hey, that was really encouraging, thank you. There are so many small things that we can do, and I think one of the most powerful small things we can do is just leave a scripture for somebody. Bev, sometimes he'll, less these days because I'm, I'm doing way better the last 15 years of my life, but the first 10 years of our marriage, I definitely struggled. I was battled depression a lot. It was really hard. And I would come to my desk and I'd find just little index cards with verses, just a verse listed or a verse written out. Some days that thing was just the anchor I was clinging to, just to keep me going for the day. There's value when you send someone God's, word, someone God's word. So don't ignore it when God puts a scripture on your heart to send to somebody. He sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, that which you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. I love how Isaiah says, this says the Lord God of Israel. Lord hasn't forgotten or abandoned his covenant with his people. He was still their God, and he heard Hezekiah's prayer. I've heard what you've prayed against this king. The word against is not, it's not that strong. It just means concerning or in reference to this king. And yet it is still against the king because he's saying, I know why they translated it that way, because he's like, Lord, deal with him. He's not saying, Lord, throw him a birthday party. Generally speaking, I don't think we're supposed to pray against people. You know, the guy that cuts you off, right? You know? Lord, let him get in an accident. Like, that's not how we should be praying. Jesus told us to pray for our enemies, not against our enemies. In fact, this is the only time that this word or this phrase, praying against a specific person, 
happens in the Bible. This, that happens in the Bible. Now, we do have Psalms written by David. We prayed God to judge his enemies, cut their tongues in half, break their teeth. Gets real creative with what he wants God to do with him. But he never names anybody when he prays that. It's always the generic, my enemy, or my enemies. And because of that generic nature, when David will say, Lord, break the teeth of my enemies, there is developed teaching in the church about prayer where we, we should pray against other people who are our enemies. Or, to be honest, if they just offend us. I do think there's a time to pray against a legitimate enemy. Like if you're dealing with somebody and they just won't repent. Like they just won't repent and, you know, not a believer of course, but maybe they're threatening you or your loved ones. Maybe it's a boss, you know, or a coworker or whatever. I think there's a time when you can say, Lord, please deal with them because they won't repent. Lord, I can't preserve myself from them, so please will you preserve me from them? That's the kind of situation Hezekiah is in, and so he prays against this guy, and the Lord heard that prayer, and he had an answer. Verse 21, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. And then the Lord, this is really cool, because the Lord, you know, it's funny, when Jesus came and he did parables, it seemed new, but it's not that new if you look at the Old Testament. There are numerous times when the Lord speaks through prophets via parable, and he gives one here. He says, the virgin daughter of Zion has despised thee, referring to Sennacherib, and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at thee. The idea here is there's this young, the virgin, a young unmarried woman who is still under her father's protection, but she's being courted by Assyria. Judah is the young virgin, and Assyria is the, the suitor. And he says here, well, the daughter of Zion has despised you. The word there means to treat as worthless. She's just, you're not worth it. I don't want to marry you. She's laughed you to scorn. You know, you've persisted, and she said, no, your nose is too big. She's shaking her head at you. No, I'm not interested. And the answer is no. So the idea is this picture the Lord paints is up strolls the arrogant king of Assyria to go find a girl, and he spies Judah and likes what he sees, and he plans to marry her. Well, remember, Ahaz is the one that was first approached by Assyria, and Ahaz agreed to the marriage between Assyria and Judah. But Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, breaks off the relationship when he becomes king. In essence, saying, I don't want to marry you. We get nothing out of this. You're not good enough. And that rejection infuriated the king of Assyria. That's what God's saying. You're just a jilted suitor. How dare you? Why would you not receive me? Because your God told you to break our relationship off? Well, let me tell you about your God and why you shouldn't listen to him. And this is a rare look into God's perspective on something that we all have perspectives on. Because God's giving his perspective in the letter, and basically it's almost like he comes and he says, do you realize who you're bad-talking? Look at verse, the next verse. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you exalted your voice and lifted up your eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? 
Who have you insulted? Who have you blasphemed? Who have you spoken evil about that you have raised yourself, exalted yourself in pride and arrogance that to make yourself equal with me? The words conjure the image of a girl breaking off the engagement and the jilted man raising his voice to shout her down, critiquing her father's love and spouting his wisdom in order to pressure her to change her mind. And then the dad walks out on the porch and says, come again, boy? That's the image that's being painted here. By your messengers, verse 23, you have reproached the Lord and you've said, your boasts to my daughter? With the multitude of my chariots, I've come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the tall cedar trees thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof. I will enter the lodgings of his borders and into the forest of his Carmel. I have digged and drunk strange waters, and with the sole of my feet, I've dried up all the rivers of the besieged places. Isn't it interesting how God sees the enemy's words differently than the enemy states them? Rabshakeh's words were definitely arrogant, but they emphasized the facts, the evidence. But God emphasizes the pride behind those words. The father reminds the boy, you didn't arrive at your accomplishments on your own. It was the heavenly father who gave you those victories. Verse 25, have you not heard long ago how I have done it and of ancient times that I have formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be to lay waste fenced cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, this is why their inhabitants were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were like the grass of the field and as the green herb. They were like grass on the rooftops and as corn blasted before it be grown up. You didn't rise to power by your own skill or wisdom. I planned all this a long time ago. What you're seeing now when you defeat other nations is that my plans have finally fallen into place. That's why you've been so successful. You think you've conquered mighty cities? I've been weakening them for decades to make it easy for you. He says, you've been bowling with kitty bumpers on, buddy. Which means, by calling me out, you have bitten off way more than you could chew. Verse 27 but I know your abode and you're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me. I know where you live. I know every move you make. I know how you enrage yourself against me. It means to work yourself up over your displeasure with me. God calls it out. He says, you didn't invade Judah because you're trying to keep the peace or even to protect your nation. It wasn't even about expanding your kingdom. You invaded because you're upset that I didn't give you what you wanted. I think it's a perfectly normal emotion or human experience to think to yourself when something, a difficulty arises, to go, man, that's not what I was hoping for. But it's another thing to get yourself all upset over it because ultimately that anger is directed at God for letting the thing happen. Now, you might tell yourself, well, yeah, but I'm not a spoiled brat like Sennacherib here. I mean, the way God describes him is, wow, I have good reasons to be angry at God. Be careful with that mindset. Pride is the invisible sin. It's so hard to see in ourselves. I'm pretty sure Sennacherib had told him self-lies of, well, this is why I'm doing this. 
Well, Sennacherib's pride only grew worse when he ignored all the barricades God was putting up in his path. Verse 28, he says, because your rage against me and your tumult has come up into my ears. The word tumult, it means your rude and disrespectful, disrespectful behavior. Because of that, therefore I'll put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Because you pushed the issue. Because you insulted me. You, you came against me. You called me out. You lied about me. You are no match for me. You're like a domesticated animal to me. I'll just put a bit and a bridle in your mouth and I'll take you where I want you to go. And so the Lord leaves us, leaves Hezekiah with the image of the strong father protecting his daughter by dragging the arrogant boy back to his house. Get off my lawn. But with none of the old man bitterness. Well, having dealt with the king of Assyria's future, the Lord turns to speak to Hezekiah of his nation's future. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall eat this year such things as grow of themselves. And in the second year, that which springs of the same. And in the third year, you're going to sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruits thereof. And the remnant that has escaped out of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they shall escape out of Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. I love this, verse 29. You shall. This is my promise. This invasion is going to leave you in a rough economic spot, Hezekiah. You're not going to be able to tend to your crops this year. You're not even going to be able to plant a new harvest for next year. But a few years from now, all will return to normal. I don't usually like that kind of an answer to prayer. Like, I kind of want the answer to prayer God gives me is, skidoosh, it's all fixed, right? It's just all fixed. Sometimes the Lord says, hey, be rough for a little while. Stick with it. You are going to stand on your feet again, though. It's going to be good again. And he says, those who survive the invasion, the remnant, they're going to be all right. He says, my zeal will do this. My passion, my deep devotion for you will do this. How awesome was it for Hezekiah to hear that God was still deeply devoted to them? He had put on sackcloth told Isaiah, I know this is God's discipline. I know it's his judgment. And yet the Lord says to him, I'm as deeply devoted to you as I've ever been. And that's what's going to bring to bear this promise to be fulfilled. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we deny him, he will not deny himself. What is that? I'm sorry. Let me go quote it correctly. Hear the words come out of your mouth sometimes, you're like, that's not what I wanted to say. If we believe not, if we are faithless, yet he remains faithful, he cannot deny himself. Much better than what I said. If we betray him, he remains faithful to us because that's who he is. He doesn't stop being who he is just because we fail, which is the writer's point, remember? Covenants and character. He hammers it home yet again to the exiles in Babylon. God is faithful. He keeps his part of the covenant. He loves you still. He is devoted to you still. 
Now, obviously, this promise means that something needs to happen to the Syrian army that's on Jerusalem's doorstep. And so God says in verse 32, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank, siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. He shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Because I'm deeply devoted to my people, he's not even going to attack the city. I will answer your request with a yes, Hezekiah, and I will do it for my sake and for my promise to David. I will do it that others might know that I'm the only God, and because I made a promise to David. God doesn't do it because anyone deserved it. He does it out of mercy, a desire to answer this heartfelt request, and he does it out of a faithfulness, a desire to keep his promise. This is so similar to the message that Isaiah gave to Ahaz when Ahaz was in a crisis. Both Ahaz and Hezekiah received a promise. Both received a sign, but only one believed. You and I have been given promises from God as well. Do you know them? Do you trust them? I think sometimes we do what we do because we don't know them. But do we trust them when we do know them? Let's get in the Word, and then let's trust what the Lord promises. Amen? Well, I'm out of time, but we do need to read the end, so we'll just read it. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out, and he smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand, so 185,000. And when they, referring to the Israelites, arose in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. And so... Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adremelech and Sherezer, two of his sons, smote him with the sword, and then they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. God keeps his promises, right? He does what he says he will do. Who in the world do we think we are when we challenge God? It's much better to receive his love, don't you think? Than to fight him, challenge him, shake your fist at him, scream at him, wrestle with him. I want to encourage you with something. I want to encourage you, if you've never done this before, take some time and just consider what accusations, what threats, or what evidence is the enemy bringing you lately. Take those words that the enemies would whisper in your ear, write them down and present it to the Lord and ask Him to deal with it. I'm not saying that everything should be done that way, but it meant something for me. Maybe it would mean something for you as well. Let's all stand. If you ever want to have some fun, go look up what all the historians describe happened to this army. They have some very creative descriptions of what happened. None of them were there, of course. It's all people from afar chronicling based on hearsay. Truth is, it didn't matter. God sent one angel to kill 185,000 people. I think he can defend you and me. So, Lord, we trust in you. You're the God of all flesh. You're almighty God. And, Lord, you are all-powerful. You are all-wise, and you do rule. So, we don't want to be found fighting against you. We want to submit to you, trust you, keep ourselves in your love, Experience all you have for us. 
And then, Lord, we ask that you would deal with the enemy in his words. We pray against him, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.